When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Before we get into the interview, I want to make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out. And make sure to comment and like if you enjoy the episode. And I guess you can comment even if you don't. We all know by now that making it in the restaurant industry is tough. And that was even before COVID. We also know that being a female in the restaurant industry is even tougher. So what does it take to really make it as a female restaurant owner? Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Esther Choi, chef and owner of Mock Bar, with locations in Chelsea Market, Midtown, and soon both New Jersey and Las Vegas. Also, she has a restaurant, Calm, that just opened in Brooklyn. You may know Esther best from her many appearances on the Food Network, on Bobby's Triple Threat, she took down both Bobby Flay and the Titans, or Heat Eaters by First We Feast on YouTube, or her Instagram account, at Choi Bites, where she has almost 400,000 followers. Esther, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Nice to meet you, Karen. Great to meet you. I got to get to your backstory. Tell us about cooking with your grandma as a young girl. Oh, man, the memories go back 38 years. I just turned 38 recently. But I was pretty much raised by my grandparents in southern New Jersey. My parents were both immigrants and small business owners. So they were working all the time. So my grandmother and my grandfather raised me and my siblings. And my grandma was always such an amazing cook. I know that everyone says that about their grandmother. I never said gra- that about my grandmother. Never. <laughs> no? No, never. <laughs> but I understand that most people yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's part about being part of an immigrant family where you miss home and 
the grandmothers end up doing a lot of the housework. And then my parents obviously were working a lot. So my grandmother and my family was always missing home and how to find that home was through food. And uh, that's how I grew up. And I was very heavily inspired by my grandmother's cooking and just her philosophy of cooking and and life in general. So even to now, I'd say that she is my biggest inspiration. So she must be thrilled with where you've taken it. It's sort of unimaginable. Yeah, the, honestly, my whole family was very against my career choices, <laughs> but I think that in the end, it worked out pretty well. So yes, now they are proud of me. But you know, when my grandmother sees me now, she still cries like all the time, thinking that I work too hard. But I do it because I love it. Okay, so how did you get from your your kitchen with your grandmother? to coming to New York City and finding your life there as a chef? I guess I took a very unconventional path. I I did go to pharmacy school right out of high school. So I did try the medical field because that is what my parents wanted. For me, my siblings, you know, it is they wanted like a white collared, very well-educated career choice for me, very typical in the Korean household. Right. Lawyer, doctor, that sort of thing. Exactly. Lawyer, doctor. And I did end up going to pharmacy school, but I ended up um, graduating and then leaving that industry to pursue cooking because that's what I really wanted to do. I mean, I thought about, you know, my passions and I'm, I'm definitely the type of person where I'm not going to do something that I don't like. It's just how I am. I've always loved to work. I always loved the idea of making money and being very independent. And part of that came from having my own job, even at a very young age. I think I started my first job at 14. And um, throughout my entire teenage and 20s, I've always had multiple jobs, always seeking out like different types of work because I liked the idea of working and being independent. And I think one of my first jobs was at a restaurant. And I think that really impacts what I wanted to do with my career later in life. What was that job at a restaurant? I started as a hostess and then a server. So heavily like front of the house positions where I was doing everything from like the hostessing was the first job and the waitress and the bartending and then so on and so forth. But I feel like the restaurants really taught me and raised me to be a very independent person. And it made me really love working. So I think that was a very big part of it. And of course, the influence of my grandmother and, and cooking in general that I really loved. I loved food in general and the creative process behind making food. And so that's how, I guess, uh, it developed into a more robust career in, in cooking. So you were at some pretty famous restaurants, La Esquina, Ilili, which I actually love. So while you were there, though, that those aren't traditional Korean cooking. What were you thinking about how to get back to your roots? It's interesting because the choices I made in the restaurant industry when I took on cooking jobs, it wasn't planned. I didn't plan on working at a Lebanese restaurant, which I had no idea what Lebanese food even was. It was a very new experience for me diving into a different culture and the foods of a different culture. But I feel like that was a big impact as well. Same with La Esquina, which is a Mexican restaurant. I didn't know how to cook Mexican food, but kind of fell into that job 
because of a chef that I previously worked for. And I think all of these kind of made me realize I really wanted to cook Korean food in the end. And I think that it's because I've seen the passion of like a specific cuisine and what that could do in terms of representation. It made me really want to cook food that I know really, really well and what I really, really love. And Korean food in particular needed a lot of representation at the time because no one was really cooking Korean food in a way where it was modern. And I feel like it deserved a lot more limelight. And at the time, it was kind of at the beginning of the Korean food wave where people were getting to know the cuisine. And I I felt like I really needed to be a part of it. And it almost felt like a really important decision on my end, and partly because I was so passionate about Korean food as well. Growing up, obviously eating my grandmother's food, it's what I love the most. I mean, still like Korean food is something that I can't live with. I eat it every single day. And I know that I'm Korean, but it's still like something that I'm really, really obsessed with. I'm just curious. So you seem very confident. You've obviously done a lot at a very young age. But when you went to Laskino or Ilili, Did you pretend like you knew how to cook those kind of foods or did you just say to yourself, I got this? It was more, I think that in this profession or in in any career, you have to have a mindset of being a little bit humble. And I think as a woman, that is what really helped me in a kitchen and in the career that I'm in because it's very heavily male dominated. Obviously, I was the only female walking into these kitchens, all male cooks, and it was very challenging. But in a sense, I think that actually helped me be a better cook and thrive in the industry because I I really was open to learning and I, I really wanted to kind of absorb everything that I could. And part of it is saying that I don't know, so please teach me. And with the different cuisines, I didn't know a single thing, but I ended up learning like so much about it and so much more because I was very open to it. And I think compared to my fellow very stubborn male line cooks and chefs, it was a very different light and and people were very, very open to teaching me the way. So I think a a big part of uh, why I advanced so quickly was because of that mindset of being humble. So another important and interesting thing happened in your career. I'm not sure of the timing relative to those restaurants, but Iron Chef and becoming a TV presence. That's a pretty interesting side path. How did that happen? So before I dived into restaurants, right out of culinary school, I actually wanted to work in food media and, uh, and, and be a part of like production and TV. And, and I, I I always had like a very big interest in that field. So I did end up working at the food network for quite a while. I actually took a uh, internship position there. And then a few years I spent working with the most famous chefs in the industry. And I worked actually on several seasons of Iron Chef behind the scenes and got to learn the industry a lot. And that actually like had a very big impact on now doing a lot of television and working in that field. I did, I guess, manifest it a little bit where I knew that I I wanted that to be a part of my career. I love the restaurant and, and owning my own business, but I think a big part of owning your own business is marketing and PR and, you know, naturally being on TV and like doing these things and and on that side brings 
natural marketing PR to your business. So it kind of coincided. And later on, after opening my restaurant several years later, I've gotten many opportunities to host shows or judge or be on camera and compete on cooking competitions. And partly it has a lot to do with, I guess, my past and like my experience in working behind the scenes in production. And it's always been kind of like a simultaneous career that happened. And I enjoy both of them very, very much. And I guess I am very lucky, but it's a lot of work to do both. Right. Lucky and smart and hardworking. I think uh, all of those are necessities. But okay, so you're on Heat Eaters, which I don't know if everyone's seen it, but you just try to find the most fiery, spiciest meal you can imagine. You seem to love it. Oh my gosh. I am like not exaggerating. I love, love, love spicy food. And I am the spice queen. I Every meal I eat, I have to have some sort of spicy element in that meal. And so when they asked me to be the host of the show, I felt like it was only natural. I'm like, oh, I do that every day anyway. So it's perfect. But the show has been really fun. It's a deep dive into why spicy food is such a big part of many cultures and diving into the spicy food craze and why people are so addicted to it. And it's exploring a lot of culture and a lot of learning about a lot of food. And so it kind of hits all those spots for me. So it's been a really fun show. Um, Plus you have celebrity chefs. So that seems to be like another interesting part of your world where you have these, uh, almost all of them are older than you are and sort of in a position to be a mentor somewhat. I mean, that's a really interesting gig. Do you find that really helpful to get that advice from them? I definitely do. I mean, a lot of these chefs have been tremendous mentors to me. And obviously, for me, it's aspirational to like always want to model after someone or get advice from someone that you respect so much. So it has been an amazing, amazing thing to be in that circle and be able to get a lot of career advice and sort of the next steps in my career choices. And because I think at a certain point, you have a lot of options and saying no to a lot of things is important as saying yes. So making those choices, it's been helpful to have mentors and mentors that, you know, you respect so much is, I think, a really important part of it. Let me just go back and ask you a little bit of advice on eating spicy food. So water doesn't really help, right? Do you need milk? You need yogurt? Let's say you've made a mistake. You've overestimated your ability. This doesn't happen to you, I know, but just like, you know, asking for a friend, let's say, and that you've really overdone it. What can you do? Oh, trust me, for everyone, there's still a threshold (laughs) for me. Yes, water will not help. Actually, it will probably make it a lot worse in the long run. The only true medicine to that I would antidote to spice would be thyme, um, which I know is not the best. Like <laughs> so, sort of like a heartache, just time, and then you'll get over it. But uh, yeah, you, you will short... get over it. Time will heal. But for immediate relief, I would say something on the milky dairy tone is always nice. It's a balance. And and uh, for me, it's something sweet and dairy, like ice cream or something like that really helps. But in the end, then if you eat too much of that too, then your stomach will hurt even more. So I don't know. It, there's a, it's a fine balance. Yes, exactly. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Esther Choi, chef and restaurateur. So I want to talk now about your mock bar career. How did you come up with it? What are you doing with it? So mock bar is my real baby, I guess. This is what took my career to that level. It was always been a dream to open up my own restaurant. And I opened mock bar when I was 28 years old. It was in 2014. So we're almost at our 10-year anniversary mark, which is amazing. To survive as a restaurateur in New York City is extremely difficult. Well, to start at 28 as a restaurateur is extremely difficult. By the way, I just want to add, as a little research to our time here, I went to Mock Bar. I love that. Which location did you visit? The Midtown one. Oh, the Midtown one. Amazing. Yeah, that's one of our most uh, recent locations. I love our Midtown location. That's a good, good choice. Yeah, but Mock Bar, it's evolved over the years, but we opened it in 2014 as a Korean ramen bar. And at the time, ramen was such a, a huge hit in New York City. It's It was such a trendy food item that people were seeking out. And it was kind of like a new culture of like ramen lovers in New York City. So I decided to kind of take the ramen concept and build in Korean flavors into it. So I branded it as a ramen bar 
knowing that people wouldn't really understand if it was like a Korean restaurant because Korean food was still very relatively new and unfamiliar to a lot of people at the time. So we use like ramen as a vehicle to introduce Korean flavors to foreigners and New Yorkers. And we had a lot of success. And then eventually over time, we evolved it into more of like a Korean brand. It's a Korean Uh, spot with now we do like rice bowls and we do Korean snacks and we brand it as a Korean restaurant because obviously that is what it is and what I really wanted it to be. We still still do ramen and still have a lot of original dishes, but over the years, I felt like Mokbar really helped move the Korean food wave into the next level that it is now. Now a lot of people are familiar with Korean food, which I'm so happy. And I feel like Mokbar had a big impact in doing so. I was going to ask, do you feel some ownership of that? I think that it definitely hit a spot where a lot of Korean chefs wanted to do Korean food as well. And they saw the success of it. And also the success of Mokbar kind of showed that Korean food can be at this next level. So yeah, I'm extremely proud of that. And a lot of people's first time trying Korean food was at Mokbar. So that was very exciting for me as well. So I mean, it helped with our location, our first location being in Chelsea Market, where it's very international. People from all over the world come visit that market. So it was kind of very intentional for me to open in Chelsea Market and have the idea of wanting to educate people about Korean food and Korean flavors. So we have a lot of business people on this show, and I know you think of yourself probably as a chef first, but now you've had to really become a business person, or or I assume you do. That's a really big shift. So how did you learn that? How did you learn that side of the business? It wasn't easy. (laughs) I think uh, trial and error was a big part of it. Also, just diving in without kind of any, I guess, just like the passionate part of it and also just uh, the willingness to do whatever it takes to make it work. And for me, that was a lot of like learning, trying things out. If it didn't work, then try the next thing and never giving up and really just kind of trusting in your instincts. And a lot of those type of beliefs helped, but also educating myself at any level and always being open to learning. And I think the business side of it, obviously, I've never ran a business before, but you know, a lot of it had to be like reading up on things, researching it, trying it. If it didn't work, trying something else and constantly learning. And and even now I am still consistently and constantly learning and wanting to educate myself on how to get to that next level. So with Mokbar, with our expansion, now we have four locations going into many more locations in the future. It's constantly having to learn and figure it out and being open to doing so, I think is very important. I I know you've said you would never recommend to anyone opening a restaurant, and yet you continue to do so with increasing speed. It's like an addiction. It's it's kind of crazy. You just can't stop. And also, stopping almost feels like failure. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet to you, stopping feels like failure, like I'm unable to grow anymore. All right, so you've had to learn business. And obviously, you're you're very good at sort of marketing and getting out there. You've got a big following. But it has probably taken you away from the chef part a little bit. 
I don't know how much time you spend in the kitchen versus the, you know, accounting room, whatever that might be in your <laughs> restaurant. How do you do that balance? It is extremely difficult. I think uh, when I first opened my restaurant, a lot of the advice I got from people that have done it previously or or mentors, they've said you have to sort of pick. You're either going to have to pick the business side or pick the chef side and the creative side, and you really can't do both. And I'm still struggling with that idea because I really love both. I think that you can find creativity in business and entrepreneurship. And that's what I love about entrepreneurship so much is that there is a lot of creativity that you can kind of build in to being an entrepreneur. Whereas the chef side is like truly an art form, but also if you're running a business, you have to really compromise in a lot of your art and a lot of the things that you do in the kitchen. So it's been extremely difficult to kind of pick a side and I haven't yet because I still do both because I'm still like obsessed with doing both. I love being in the kitchen and cooking and that's why I do a lot of TV shows and compete because it keeps me creative and thoughtful as a chef. Whereas with my restaurants, I am very sort of business-minded and in the end, I can't be like too creative because, you know, it's still business. I have to run a business and we have to make money and I can't just like do whatever I want in the kitchen because then we'll lose money. (laughs) So it's finding that balance and it's still really hard. I really haven't found the answer to that. So I just push myself to do both. So going back to your very first restaurant, where did you get the funding to do that? Who believed in you? So it was a very unique way of starting a restaurant. I started the first restaurant inside Chelsea Market, which is a big, beautiful uh, food hall. And I actually shared the elevator with the leasing agent who ran the market. And I shared that elevator with him while I was working at the Food Network. I literally did an elevator pitch when I saw that one space was available. Literally in the elevator. It literally in the elevator, I was like, I have this phenomenal idea, hear me out. And I gave my one minute pitch. And then later on, he asked me to submit an actual real proposal and a business plan. And then from there, it took months of grueling competition and many, many tastings, writing a business plan and doing all of that and presenting to the entire uh, market and the team there. And basically, it was a big competition to like win the space. And when they did grant me the space, I did end up winning that bid. I asked them to fund it for me as well. They did end up funding it. It was a quick turnover, though, because it was a pre-existing space and the previous owner went out of business. So I just took over that place and kind of just it was very minimal finances that went in because I used all the same equipment pretty much the same look. So I asked them for a little bit of funding to do the facade and change like the signage and things like that. And then I took a small loan from my parents to pay for the food that I'm going to start with and some of the payroll costs up front because I needed to hire staff because I had like negative, you know, $100 <laughs> in my account. So I needed something to start with. And I ended up paying my parents back within, you know, a few weeks. I got very lucky, but also like knew exactly what I needed to ask for. Okay. So now you're on a different scale, right? You're multiple locations, expansion. You're sort of in a different league of funding now. 
Do you self-fund that or do you go out to investors or how do you put the business part together? So I've not ever raised money. So I, it's, everything has been self-funded by the, the restaurants that are, were currently existing or the money that I bring in through my other side career or the landlords. And that's the deals that I usually like to make when I think about expansion. It's like, who is going to pay for me to be there? Because I think that as a operator that really cares and an operator that hasn't ever gone out of business in any of my locations, it's a privilege to have a really great operator in a space where someone can bring culture and also, you know, a great brand to drive traffic to a space. So I typically, when looking for a space, seek out spaces that will be funded completely by the landlord. So that seems like an outstanding plan, if you could get that. Um, So good for you. So I know, you know, historically, it seems like a very hard road for women in the restaurant business. And I don't know if an Asian woman makes it potentially even harder, but you've managed to do it. So what advice would you have for someone who, who wanted to be another Esther Choi? I think the first thing is like, you have to be very sure of what you want because I think confidence is the most important thing in being in an industry where it's tough, where maybe you're the only female or, or maybe you're the only minority or whatever the case is, but like using those things that seem like a negative into a positive way. For me, it didn't seem like a negative thing where I was the only female in the kitchen. I was like, Oh, I'm lucky. I'm the only girl here, so I know what I can do. And making it into a more positive situation and using your resources around you and what you know that you're good at uh, and being very confident in that is, I think, very important and key to being successful, especially like in an industry like mine where, you know, it's physically very challenging to be in a kitchen, but you can't think of it that way. Like, yes, I'm smaller in size and physically probably not as strong as a lot of my male counterparts, but I know that I can use my head more than all all of these people. And I knew that. And I used everyone around me to help me get through a shift or drain the oil or do all these physically very difficult things to do. You use your other skills to advance. And, And I think that that to me is, you know, where someone will thrive. Finding areas where it seems like a negative, but it's actually like a very, very positive thing. I get that. I've been in many meetings that are all men and me, and I often see it as a chance to shine that the nine other men or however many other men in the room might not have. So it feels daunting, but it's actually can be an opportunity. All right. So you've built this empire now at the ripe old age of 38 that's still growing. Are you surprised where you've how far you've come, how much you've accomplished? Or is this just enough for you to feel like, okay, I've made it, but I've got more to do? I never feel fully accomplished. I don't know. Like when people say that to me, I'm still in disbelief. I'm like, what What do you mean? Like that, like I have so much more to do and there's so much more to do in this world. And I feel like my list is never ending, the things that I want to accomplish. So when I do hear that, I feel like very grateful, but I'm still in that mindset of being 
humble and wanting to do more and, and having to drive because one thing that I realized is if you don't have a drive and a dream, then it's really extremely difficult to move forward. And I actually get like very depressed and down on myself if I don't have a dream or a goal to accomplish. And I love being goal oriented because of that reason. When I first opened my restaurant, my first restaurant, because I didn't understand that, it was really hard for me emotionally because I felt like, okay, so I opened this restaurant and accomplished this goal and is successful, but now what? It felt very weird to me and learning how to create more goals and more things to achieve for yourself, I think is very important. So I think on that note, I feel like I, I want to do a lot more and I haven't accomplished a lot of the things that I, I still want to accomplish. So let me switch to work-life balance, which I don't really know what that means for you. Does that mean balancing between your midtown location and opening, you know, one in Las Vegas? What, what is work-life balance for you? Okay. So that's another thing that I always struggled <laughs> with. I feel like, you know, it's always the the same things that busy people, I guess, struggle with. Work-life balance and finding time for myself has always been a struggle because it's so combined. I mean, once you become an entrepreneur, it's like your life, like every your whole lifestyle becomes that one thing. But I think it's really important to separate yourself sometimes with your business because then you'll just like literally go crazy. You mean like from your business persona? Yes. Yeah, from your business, for sure. But also from the, I define myself by my success in my business. You're saying trying to separate yourself from that person. Yes, exactly. And even with being a public figure or like social media, I like to keep a part of my life pretty private because it's for myself and that's for me. And for me, finding that balance and finding that privacy has been extremely important because that's what I need. So I think I'm still in the process of figuring that part out, what work-life balance really is and how do I separate myself from that. But still, it's a big part of my life. So still uh, trying to figure that one out. That success in that area is more difficult for you. I think that I found a good balance where my privacy, like I said, is important and spending time with my family and, and people that I separate the business side from. That's how I find it and finding peace there. And also like taking time off when I need to and just turning that off and saying like, listen, I'm on vacation and it can wait until I'm back. Like that's very important. So I always try to take time off and it, it's important for me mentally as well to do that. So I think I've learned over the years how to do it. So I'm not crazy obsessive over like work all the time. It's a struggle <laughs> still. <laughs> I get it. Okay. I have one thing I've always wondered about when you're a chef and you, you've created a meal for someone and they are absolutely just overjoyed and love it. And it makes them so happy. What does that feel like for you to have created that? Well, that's, I think that feeling is why I do what I do, right? It, it's just feeling of being so satisfied uh, watching someone eat. Like for me, more than the process of cooking is watching someone eat the food that I've made that makes me so happy. And um, I think it's a part of being a, a pleaser in general, which I think that 
a lot, a lot of my personality traits have always been that style of like wanting to please and wanting to make my parents proud or make someone proud. And uh, it, it all kind of intertwines with the feeling of like, as a chef, making something and making people happy. So that has actually been like a very big part of like my success in running my restaurants and a team and also being a chef and an entrepreneur is that part of giving and wanting to please and uh, being extremely satisfied when you see that. I would bet. So if I were to just go to one of your restaurants on any given day, are you going to be there? Where are you? Or do you go to all of them? What's your day like? Depends on the day and the time and the week. My schedule is extremely crazy. It's never the same day or the same city. I, I do travel quite a lot for work as well. So I'm either in a different city or if I am in New York at any of my uh, four given restaurants. So I'm bouncing between you know, all different locations. So I, I think that's a tricky one. It depends. <laughs> okay. Maybe you can follow me to see where I am currently situated. I do post about it a lot. All right, good. And then probably an elevator somewhere when you're looking to expand. Okay. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the lightning round. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and we're back with Esther Choi, chef and restaurateur. Okay, so here we go. This is the lightning round. It's really just would you rather, and you just have to say the first thing that comes to your mind, which of the two. Oh, boy. Okay. Would you rather Bibimbap? Or Bill Golgi? Definitely Bibimbap. <laughs> okay. Korean barbecue or Korean fried chicken? Korean barbecue. Puppy or kitten? Puppy. I just got a new puppy, actually. Uh, we heard that. <laughs> yes, yes. So definitely puppy. Okay. Um, 11 Madison or per se? Ah, oh, so hard. 11 Madison. Okay. Seoul or Busa? Seoul. Okay, would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Laugh uncontrollably. Carolina Reaper or Ghost Pepper, which are, apparently I learned, two extremely hot spices. 
it's basically the definition of hell for both. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to go with the Carolina Reaper. Okay. And some milk or, or some sort of yogurt with yes. that. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> I, okay. I have to ask, what's the best meal you've ever eaten? And you can include your own. Best meal I've ever eaten. Definitely something from my grandmother. I would say like a very uh, home cooked meal by my grandmother and definitely with her kimchi involved because it is the best kimchi in the world. Okay. One last question. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment? And investment can mean anything. Best investment I've ever made was in myself. And the worst investment, oh man, that's hard. I would say the worst investment one of my uh, restaurant locations where I thought that it would be a huge success, but it wasn't. But it, it's okay. It's okay. You live it, you learn it. All right. Thank you so much for being with me. I really enjoyed it. And I've loved your restaurants and I love your story. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Esther Choi for sharing her journey from chef to Food Network star to restaurateur. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. Onward.